To start, I'm going to go ahead and read a passage from the book of Lamentations. It's chapter 3, and it's verses 22 through 26. It says, Because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish, for his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will put my hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for salvation from the Lord. Thanks, Christian. Good morning, everyone. It's not very often that it takes me this long to get a microphone on, so it's good to see you guys. Um, You know, it's interesting that right there, as you're working your way through Lamentations, not exactly what you'd expect to find when you hit chapter 3 and the prophet Jeremiah just bursts into this exaltation of God, talking about his mercy and, and all the hope that we have when we trust in the Lord, even in the midst of great struggle and trial. And I think that that's kind of the narrative for us, isn't it? That we often go through a lot of struggles. We are often in seasons of peril and God is there. There's hope in the midst of it. There's hope in the midst of all the struggles that we're battling through. And um, I, I don't know how many of you this morning may have felt that little twinge of, oh no, they're reading from Lamentations to start. This is going to be a good day. But we're beginning a new study series, and I felt like that passage from Lamentations 3 really drew us into a right mindset of how we need to approach this text. And I want to begin, as you can see on the screen behind me, since it's no secret, we're going to be studying through Habakkuk uh, all the way up until Advent, all the way up until the end of November. We're going to be spending time uh, in this book of a minor prophet. So if you want to turn to Habakkuk, um, we'll begin there. But to prepare us for this study series, I wanted to start with Psalm 50, verse 15. God implores Israel this way. I, he says this, call on me in a day of trouble. I will rescue you and you will honor me. It's a simple psalm. It's a good one to memorize. Call on me in a day of trouble, God says. I will rescue you, and you will honor me. Now, our minds, I think, can tend to fade towards the end, towards the, like, fade out towards the end of that psalm, and here's why I say that. I think when we think about calling out to God, we're in trouble. We're like, check. I'll do that. He's going to rescue me. Double check, right? Totally down for the Lord rescuing me, and what else do we really need to know? What else do we really need to worry about? I'm going to call out to God when I'm in a season of trouble. I'm going to be rescued by him. Problem solved. But what does it say at the end of the psalm? And you will honor me, God says. The purpose of God rescuing us from our trouble is so that we would honor him. And how many times when God rescues us from our trouble, from our situation, do we end up going right back to where we got into trouble in the first place? Or we end up finding some new trouble. If you were me as a kid, I always found a new way to get into trouble because I knew that I'd been caught it this way, so I should try it over here that way. Right? You guys, you will honor me not only reveals the purpose of God's work in our lives, which is his glory, but it also indicates how he will rescue his people. This is very important for our study series in Habakkuk. God will rescue his, his way. God's going to do this his own way. 
Now, your spirit in this moment here in church on a Sunday morning may be like, yes, do it your way, God, fully submitted. But the second we walk outside of these doors, that becomes a lot more of a difficult reality, doesn't it? Because now I have to trust him that no matter what he's doing, he's still getting his work done. So long as I remain in submission and obedience to him, God is doing what he desires to do his way. How many of us are okay with that when it's not Sunday morning? If you're like me, you love examples or case studies on what this truth looks like in real life, that God rescues his people his way. I love a good case study, and that's exactly what Habakkuk is for us in regards to this statement. God is going to do what he's going to do his way. So we enter the prophet Habakkuk in his prophetic account, which we'll study through verse by verse. And I'm so excited to explore this book with you Um, for a handful of weeks because I believe this will better align our hearts with God. Not because we're going to understand. Paul explains that to us. He says, God is beyond you figuring out. So we should just trust him. It's not that we don't desire to know God in a deeper way. We do. But so many of us want to know God so that we can figure out what he's going to do next. We want to build our life around this idea that I can figure him out and know what his next move is. But he's not like that, as as C.S. Lewis would say of the character Aslan, that he designed and kind of molded after Jesus in Chronicles of Narnia. It says, he's not a tame lion. I like that. Because some people are like, wait, is God like, he's not a tame lion? That means that, yeah, first of all, you can't control him, you can't corral him, and you can't predict how he's going to do what he's going to do. You just have to trust that it's going to be good. You just have to trust that it's going to be what's best. Now he's told us all we need to know about his character in scripture so that we would trust him, not so that you would figure out every move he's going to make. In fact, most of us right now can recall in our minds a situation that we are currently in that we did not expect, that we didn't see coming. If any of you have planned your life out perfectly and everything is going according to plan, please see me afterwards. I'd like to know your secrets. You guys, I'm so excited to explore this book because Habakkuk's story is very much of someone who is confused as to what God is doing. He doesn't get it. He's having a hard time with it. He's wrestling. And I think that we'll learn much about our journey of faith by looking at Habakkuk's account. So let me do a little bit of introduction. You're going to have to pardon me for a second. I'm going to switch out of preaching and go to teaching, but then I'll go right back to preaching. Deal? Great. I'm glad you guys are on board. (laughs) Not that you could stop me unless you just threw a book at me right now. So the style of this book is unique to the biblical record. I love reading Habakkuk because it's very unique when you look at the other minor prophets, and here's why. It's a dialogue between Habakkuk and God. Habakkuk is going to talk to God. God is going to talk back to him. And what I love about this, and we'll see this further along, is when God talks back to Habakkuk, he's going to be like, what? Often we do that, don't we? Lord, why are you doing this? This is the best way. How? Trust me. Sometimes he says, trust me, right? So what we're looking at is Habakkuk trying to figure out how to process what God's doing. And it results in a dialogue between God and the prophet from chapters 1 through 2. And then in chapter 3, it's very short. You're like, we're going all the way to Advent with this? If you know me, you know I'm making quick work of it. And so... 
psalm, there's a psalm at the end of this. Chapter 3 is really a psalm. It, it echoes very much like the Psalter as you read a movement of expression to God and, and struggle and confession in some ways. And then it just ends with him rejoicing and saying, you know what, no matter what, you're God and I'm not. And that's where we want to come to. We want to come to that place. However, it takes him some time, and here's why. To understand Habakkuk and what he's talking about, we have to understand the times of Habakkuk, and they're very different from ours. He was a contemporary of Nahum, Zephaniah, and Jeremiah, meaning that they all lived at the same time, and they were writing prophecies at the same time. It was during the reigns of Josiah and Jehoiakim, and he predicted the invasion of Judah by the Chaldeans. We'll see that in next week's study as we get to verse 6. He's going to predict an invasion on the nation, the southern nation of Judah. In the 8th century BC, Chaldeans began to rise to power in Babylon. And that's why you'll see the term Chaldeans and Babylonians start to get intermingled. The Chaldeans were a political group in the southern region of Babylon that rose to power. And they were the ones who started calling the shots and really took over. And we understand that when we see different regimes take power in nations today. The Chaldeans were the ones who took power in Babylon. And so you start to see those two terms intermingle and be used as synonyms. And so when you hear Chaldean, think Babylonian. The Chaldean Nabopolassar from 626 to 605 BC began to dismantle the Assyrian Empire with the help from the Medes and founded the Neo-Babylonian Empire. And that's when about the time the term Chaldean and Babylonian started getting used in the same breath. These world events uh, came to affect Judah in a pretty massive way as Pharaoh Necho down in the southern region of Egypt, over here, Israel here, it's backwards. Egypt here, Israel here, you got Babylon over here and Assyria up here, okay? Make sense to you? Great, now that you see my back. So Pharaoh Necho passed through Palestine, which was the area of Judah, um, to basically support the remnants of the Assyrian kingdom. So he came from the south up through Palestine, and, and they were under his rule for quite some time. And so Pharaoh Necho comes through, and he's going up to support the Assyrians against Babylonia. He realizes that the Babylonians are rising to power too much, and so he says, I'm going to support Assyria. And in that process, Assyria was officially done away with and off the scene by the time of this prophecy. The godly king Josiah had confronted uh, Necho as he came through, and Necho killed him in 609 B.C. And Judah fell into the hands of Egypt from 609 to 605. They were under Egyptian rule. As Assyria fades out of the scene, and as Judah's fortunes change, Nabopolassar's son Nebuchadnezzar II defeated Necho at the Battle of Carchemish. If you know your history, that was a pretty well-noted battle. And that happened in May or June of 605 B.C. It happened on the Euphrates River. Uh, northeast of Aleppo, and, and then um, Nebuchadnezzar II succeeded his father on the throne of Babylon in September of that year. The Babylonian army pursued Necho back to Egypt, and consequently, now picture this, you probably saw it when you're looking at my back, Egypt, Syria, right, you following with me? By the way, if you ever want to feel really uncomfortable, do this with your congregation. You got Babylon over here, Assyria. Egypt. What's in the middle? Big, big, big problem. It means every time these guys want to fight, where are they going to meet? Do you know where the largest and most used battlefield in the world is? Megiddo. Right in the middle of Israel. You guys, does this help you understand Jewish history a little bit? 
They were under siege all the time. Did it have to be that way? Didn't have to be this way. How did they get to the situation that they're in? Well, they forsook their God. They stopped serving God and God stopped protecting them. He allowed these wars to come and go in their land. And yet again, here in 604 BC, Judah falls into the care and the control. Care. <laughs> we'll say control. I wouldn't say care. Uh, falls under the control of Babylon. So here we are at 600 BC-ish, 604, with Judah under the control of the Babylonians. Now, Habakkuk will predict the Chaldean devastation of Judah in verses 5 through 11 of the first chapter. However, that doesn't seem to have been fulfilled by the relatively bloodless Babylonian occupation in 604. So that means that what he's predicting here is going to happen after 604 but when jehoiakim whom nico had placed on judah's throne in 609 bc rebelled against babylon in roughly 600 bc nebuchadnezzar eventually invades the land besieges jerusalem and from 598 to 597 they're besieged and surrounded and you realize the idea of besieging is you are starving people out you are holding them hostage by surrounding them and starving them out people start to die of starvation dehydration, and a whole slew of other things because there's no way to bring in fresh supplies or care for the people inside the city. This led to Jehoiakim being uh, deposed and killed in 598 BC and his son Jehoiachin. Now you have to remember all these. There will be a test later. His son Jehoiachin going into Babylon uh, goes into exile in 597 BC. Notice how I pointed my chin. I hope my kids laughed at that. The last king of Judah was Zedekiah. He, was brought, he, he brought um, even more devastation on Judah by rebelling against Babylon in 588. And that's the one that you remember probably the most from the history of this time period. That's the time when Nebuchadnezzar comes back and levels Jerusalem. Absolutely destroys it. Devastates it. Destroys the temple. And yet as Habakkuk predicts in chapter 2 verses 6 through 20, Babylon will be judged. Even though Babylon is allowed to do all these things, he says, don't worry, they're not getting away with it. And in 539, a guy named Cyrus from Persia is going to take Babylon. And for more on that, you can read Daniel chapter 5. All these historical events allow us to date the book of Habakkuk. It allows us to figure out when it happened. He probably wrote this prophecy during the time of trouble after the death of King Josiah in 609. But before the devastations of Judah in 598-597, that places the prophecy during the reign of Jehoiakim, the father of Jehoiachin, between 609 and 599 BC, probably in the period of Egyptian domination before Babylon invaded Judah. So most likely they were under Egyptian rule at this time. Hope that's helpful. Now that we're good and lost... Understanding the injustice and the idolatry of the nation of Judah at this time is the most important factor. They are idolatrous. They have forsook God. They're all about themselves, and they're not worshiping God in action. However, lip service is still paid. They still pretended to be religious in this time. And we need to understand this as well when we want to understand the feeling of emotion and heartbreak in Habakkuk. These are violent times. There's conflict and strife. There's injustice and oppression. And the prophet turns to God in lament. In many ways, you could say that this entire prophetic book is a lament. 
But don't worry, there's a lot of hope. This is not a nation submitted to God's rule. They just claim to be. Starting to feel any echoes? Do I need to draw attention to that? I don't think I do. I'm just going to leave it. No, I will. This is us. This is us. A lot of lip service. A lot of religiosity. Not a lot of backing it up. Not a lot of action. In God we trust has become somewhat of a joke. I'm ashamed to say it. Because we trust in our wealth. We trust in our power. We trust in our influence. Are we a nation that really trusts in God? By the way, for more on that, if you want to know who inspires the nation to trust in God, it's going to be us. It's going to be the church. This is not a nation submitted to God's rule. They just claim to be. The following is a question that overhangs the whole book. Does God care when there's so much evil in the world? Does God care when evil is running rampant? Spoiler alert, God answers the question. So let's begin by looking at Habakkuk's opening prayer in verses 1 through 4 this morning. We're just going to deal with the first four verses. After we got through the introduction, now you know why. I'm excited for this, you guys. Let's read the first four verses of this prophecy. The pronouncement that the prophet Habakkuk saw. How long, Lord, must I call for help and you do not listen? Or cry out to you about violence and you do not save? Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing and conflict escalates. This is why the law is ineffective and justice never emerges. For the wicked restrict the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. This is the word of the Lord. The prophet opens the book with questions and a plea for God to take action. He asks honest questions about what's going on. As Habakkuk looks at the nation of Judah, these are his questions. How long will the prophet call for help? That's mild. That call for help is like, hey, honey, can you give me a hand? It's that kind of call for help. Do you know what the cry out means? Did you see it in verse 2? How, Lord, how long, Lord, he says, must I call for help? That's a, a soft, mild call and you don't listen. Or cry out. We would use the word scream. That's a cry out. That is a screaming out for help. It's desperation. And he says, how long? Will I call out for help and scream out about the violence that I see to what seems like a deaf ear or an unwilling hand to save? God, I have called to you. I have screamed it out. How long? It's clear that the prophet's struggling with the scene. It's going on around him. The oppression and the destruction is struggling in his soul with processing it again. Remember, his people are not really in charge right now. Israel is not being ruled by their king. They're being ruled by a king who has been put in his position by most likely Pharaoh, by Egypt. In other words, this isn't the king of their choosing. This is the one that was given to them. And he says, how long, God? It's clear the prophet's struggling. But what does he do? What do we do? When we go through struggles like this, he takes it to God again. 
He gives it to God. He goes to the Lord again with all the raw emotion and questions. He asks if God is listening. He asks if God is going to do something about it. Have you not felt this way, church? Have you not felt this longing? God, will you take action? Why? What is going on? David wrote in Psalm 34, verses 17 through 19, And Habakkuk's imploring God to be true to what David said. The righteous cry out, Psalm 34, 17, and the Lord hears and rescues them from all their troubles. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. He saves those crushed in spirit. One who is righteous has many adversities, but the Lord rescues him from them all. David wrote that Psalm long time before Habakkuk was around. Isn't it fascinating that we still continue to struggle with the promises of God because of his timing. We will struggle with the promises of God because of his timing so often. It's not because God is unfaithful. It's that his timing is not what we want it to be. We want his timing to be something different. Do you ever feel like God's indifferent to you when he's been so demonstrative in others' lives? Church, let me, let me ask you a really honest question. Not an easy one. This is an honest question. Do you ever get frustrated when God does good things in your friends' lives? Yes, you do. He's giving them everything they want. And here I am. Dumb old me. Look at them. I mean, they pray. Poof, it happens. But her husband doesn't go to work late every day. I'll bet his wife doesn't burn dinner. Why is everything so perfect for them and so terrible for me? First of all, pity party. Like, we are so like this, aren't we? It's always me. Why? You guys, Habakkuk goes to God and says, why are you so indifferent to what I'm saying? You don't think he knew the Psalms. You don't think he had seen what God had done in the past for his people. And he comes to God and is like, I can't make sense out of this. Why are you indifferent to me? Why aren't you listening to me? At the end of our time this morning, we'll preview our study for next week and see the beginning of God's response as he answers the prophet's question. So don't feel like this is hanging out nebulous. God answers. The best part about his answer is that Habakkuk likes that even less. Isn't that encouraging? Praise God. God, why? Okay, I'll answer. It's going to work like this. What? Why did I say anything? You know, makes you want to turn into Jonah, right? I knew you would do this. Save lives. Habakkuk continues his lament. Verse 3, why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Church, do you not get frustrated when you watch the news? Does it not tear your heart into pieces when you see another school shooting? Doesn't it rip your heart right out of your chest when you read about some maniac in Thailand going into a school and slaughtering children and adults alike and then killing his entire family? Does that not make us 
hate the sin of this world and ask all these questions of God. Why is this happening? Oppression and violence are just in our face all the time. Strife is ongoing. Conflict escalates. This is why the law is ineffective and justice never emerges. The wicked restrict the righteous. Justice is perverted. This isn't what God wants. Josiah was a good king. That was the king that Israel was blessed by before Jehoiakim, who is most likely the king at this time. He didn't honor God. He was unjust. And people who loved the righteousness of God were restricted. They were suppressed. They were silenced. If you were like Jeremiah, his contemporary, you were thrown in a well. Keep your mouth shut. Stop telling us the truth. Justice was perverted and twisted. There's a word in Hebrew used in verse 3 that we need to take note of. Verse 5 and verse 13 of this chapter have the same word used. And this is the word that we see here that's used for tolerate. There in the middle of verse 3. Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? I think we need to understand this word a little bit better. It's translated tolerate in verse 3 and 13, and it's translated observe in verse 5. And why does that matter? I'm so glad you asked. It's not only that the prophet himself has to look at injustice and wrongdoing, oppression, violence, strife, and conflict. He notes that God tolerates or observes it. That made me pause as I was reading this. Why is it that God observes or tolerates wickedness? The Hebrew word is nevat. It implies considering, such as in Psalm 7420. It'll be on the screen behind me. Consider the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of violence. Consider is nevat. Same word. It's translated think about in Psalm 119 verse 15. I will meditate on your precepts and nevat your ways. Think about. It's translated gazed in Psalm 102, verse 19. He looked down from his holy heights. The Lord nevots out from heaven to earth. You guys, this is fascinating to me. Do you see all the different descriptives that are used for this one Hebrew word? Causes us to take a, a moment here and look at it. Here in Habakkuk 1.3, is it's used for tolerate. Habakkuk 1.5, it's used observe. Same word used in all these contexts. And why am I making such a big deal about one word? It's because when it says that God tolerates Judah's wrongdoing, it does not mean he is putting up with it. It does not mean that he is putting up with it. This is what it means. It means he is observing gazing at, thinking about, and considering it. The prophet knows that God sees and understands what's happening. He is not seeking the why. He is seeking He is seeking for the why, excuse me, not the if. He is seeking for the why, not the if. I got myself all twisted around there for a second. I'm back. When he says tolerate, he says that God is observing. He sees it. And the prophet wants to know, why? Why aren't you acting now? He looks at an issue that often confronts all of us, trying to discern God's purposes in the midst of a very broken world. 
trying to figure out what God is doing. The things that we're struggling with in this world must not cause us to doubt that God is there or that he has the ability to see. That's not what we should struggle with. We may ask the question, why, Lord, have you not acted? Why haven't you done something? Why haven't you taken action? And this is a question that God is longing to answer for his people. And church, I think we know the answer, but maybe we need to hear it again because we grow disheartened standing in this world, looking around us at the injustice and the violence and the oppression and knowing the wickedness of our own sinful hearts. I think we know the answer. I want you to peek ahead and look at what God says to Habakkuk in verse 5, and we're going to study this next week, but this is an important piece of his question. When God responds, he says, look at the nations and observe. Be utterly astounded, for I am doing something in your days that you will not believe when you hear about it. What is God doing? He's doing something in Habakkuk's time that is so mind-blowing, you're not going to believe it when you hear it. It's going to astound you. Yeah, that's right. God doesn't work like us. He doesn't operate like we do. When we come to him in brokenness, crying out from our pain and asking him why, he gently reminds us that he has a plan. That he is going to do something, but it may not be, in fact, for me, often it's not what I thought he would do or how he would do it. A plan that we may not even believe when we hear it. Because Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 9, it's not on the board, guys. I apologize, but just listen. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. And your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. God declares to people, I think different than you do. The way that I work is different than you. For as the heaven is higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God says, you must trust me that what I am doing is best. That what I am accomplishing is my will in this world and not the will of Mike. Sorry, I made that really personal. You're like, I don't feel like it's personal at all. Well, some of us do. All the Mikes. You guys, the way that Habakkuk responds to God's plan. There's another one over here. Sorry, all my mics. I see you, Moscatelli. There's probably more. I apologize. If I'm missing some of my mics. You guys, that's not the point. It's not even in the notes. The way that Habakkuk responds to God's plan is kind of funny later on in this chapter. It's kind of funny because it's so shocking to him because God says, I'm going to do this, right? I'm going to do this thing that you won't even believe it when you hear about it. And then God tells him. He says, I'm going to use the Babylonians. And Habakkuk goes, what? They're worse. They're worse than we are. They're more depraved. They're more broken. How? What in the world is going on? It's the way we feel every November. Sorry, a little political jab there. How is this going to work? What's going on? And God's like, I got it. I got it. And we asked, Lord, how is this going to work out? How is this going to, what's going to happen to us? And he says, look up, your redemption draws nigh. Jesus is coming back, church. If you want hope, remind yourself of that daily. Jesus is coming back. Our king will return. And that's who we want. 
That's when we will see peace. That's when we will see the reign of the true king. You guys, I think you and I react the same way when God has a plan that we just can't believe is best to to do things around here. We react the same way. What in the world? I prayed. And God's like, I answered. You're like, yeah, but I don't like that. I wanted you to say this. It's funny, isn't it, in our dialogue with God, much like Habakkuk, we can come to God and say, I asked and I prayed and you did this. You must hate me. And God says, you don't understand what I'm doing. Your ways aren't my ways. Your thoughts aren't my thoughts. You're like, well, what am I supposed to do? Trust me. Follow me. Have faith. Walk with me. In fact, later on in Habakkuk, I'm just giving you guys a real overview preview. We could probably skip all the other sermons. I'm giving you all the good stuff. I'm just kidding. There's so much more good stuff. He's going to make a statement that we know really well. The just shall live by, from Habakkuk. You're like, whoa, hold up. Wait a minute. I thought that was just to encourage me when I'm having a hard time at work. Don't make it about you. The message of the just shall live by faith is set in this context of Habakkuk not being able to make sense out of what God's doing. And God says, the just shall live by faith. You want to be just? You want to be righteous? Walk with me. Trust me in this process. Paul teaches an incredible truth in Acts chapter 17. We're going to circle this for a second and come right on in for a landing. Don't worry. We're not in a hold pattern. Pilots get me. Paul teaches an incredible truth in Acts 17 in Athens that pertains to this subject as we close. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breathes and and breath, excuse me, in all things. So he gives everyone life and breath in all things. Verse 26, from one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth, and don't miss this part, and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. Do you believe, church, that the scriptures are true? Because if you do, I want you to hear Paul's sermon from Mars Hill, Acts 17, in Greece, as he says this. From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. God is in charge. He is in control. The reason the just can live by faith is because of that reality. He is in control. We can look around at our nation and really resonate with the way Habakkuk felt, can't we? We can even look at our personal lives this way and recognize how frustrating things can be. Have you been frustrated with this nation that you live in recently? Like I was this morning. I read the newspaper. Guys, Let us learn vital lessons from this book of God's word as we continue our studies going forward that God is sovereign over the nations. God is sovereign over this world. That the just will live by faith and not by sight. That's huge. Are you disheartened? Are you letting that affect the way you live? Because it should cause us to trust in the Lord more that we would walk by faith 
and not by sight. And as we'll see at the end of our study in Habakkuk, we can rejoice and praise God in all circumstances because our salvation is not tied to this world, but is authored and finished by Jesus Christ himself. Worship team, would you guys come on up? Let me ask you guys a question. Are you citizens of this country? That's a basic question. Don't think that I'm trying to over-spiritualize it. Are you citizens of this country? Yeah. Is there a difference between our true citizenship and our citizenship here in this country? Is there a higher citizenship? Can you prove it with Scripture? I hope you can because it's there. Anyone know? Just curious. Anyone know where it is? You waited too long. Philippians 3.20. Paul says it. He says, your citizenship is in heaven. Your citizenship, church, yours and mine, is in heaven. That is our citizenship. When we remember that, we remember something very important that Paul reiterates in 2 Corinthians 5. When he says, therefore, you are Christ's ambassadors. And he says, you are here and your message is this. Be reconciled to God. We have an earthly citizenship. But there is a heavenly citizenship that supersedes it because it's eternal in Jesus. And our message here, our mission here is to represent the heart, the mind, the words, the attitude, and the actions of Jesus Christ here on earth. We are his bride we are his image bearers that's our calling and if we are representing anything else whether it's a party whether it's a group whether it's a family whether it's a social gaggle pick that one out of the air whatever it is if it is not a representation of jesus christ his heart his love his mercy his gentleness his justice his goodness if we are representing anything else, we are forsaking our true citizenship and grabbing hold of something else and giving it ultimate authority, and we would call that idolatry in Scripture. We cannot have idols, which is why John ended his letter in 1 John chapter 5. He says, little children, please keep yourself from idols. Because we can become very idolatrous even as Christians by choosing to represent ourselves with something other than Jesus Christ himself. We are Christ's ambassadors. Our citizenship is in heaven. And that is when our faith and our hope come together and form this strengthening and encouragement within our lives that gives the world something to long for. Because we love each other. We talked about it last week. Our unity in Christ is our love for each other. It's the evidence to the world of his character and his nature. Why do I get all this from Habakkuk? Because we have questions. We struggle because we look at situations very similar to his. It's not as harsh. It's not as extreme. It was much worse, I think, in his time. Don't believe me? Read a little Assyrian history. Read a little Egyptian history. Read a little Babylonian history. We are not living in times like he lived. But what if we did? Would our faith be stronger than it is now? Our citizenship is not here. 
Church, I want us to pray that Jesus will give us time here in this nation. That He'll give us time. And He's going to ask in one of His prayers in this book, Habakkuk's going to say, would you renew your work amongst us in these days? Would you renew what you're doing in these days? And that has stuck with me as I've read through this text. Over and again, and we'll get to that part. Lord, would you renew the work you're doing here in the church and in our nation? Would you renew what you're doing? Lord, we long to see you glorified here. It starts with us. It starts with us, church, being drawn to the heart, the attitude, and the mind of Christ. His posture. Let us be his ambassadors crying out to this world. Be reconciled to God. Lord, as we go to a time of singing your praise, of worshiping you, I just ask, Lord, that as we focus our hearts and our minds and respond to you, that we would find a lot of comfort in the text that we've read and that your prophets struggled. They had a hard time making sense of what was going on in the world around them. I thank you for such plain to see situations like Habakkuk's where he just honestly says, God, it feels like you're not listening to me. Why aren't you taking action? Why aren't you doing something? And God, you are faithful to answer him. And we thank you that you're faithful to answer us in your word. You answer us in prayer, your spirit, your Holy Spirit. Lord, a piece of the Trinity fills us. Help us to grasp that, that the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. Lord, we need to grow in our faith. We want justice to flow from your faithful people. And so, Lord, we ask that the work that needs to happen in this nation, in this world, would begin in us. Lord, that the work that we long to see you do here in this county, that we long to see you do in this city, would begin in us. As we humbly come to you and just ask, Lord, would you cleanse us of our sin? Forgive us. Give us a love, not only for each other, but for those around us. And Lord, I pray that you would use us for your glory. And God, I pray that you would show us how we can grow and be more like you. Work in this time, Lord, as we worship. And we thank you. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for each other. And we thank you in Jesus' name.